And we're live. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm your host, Nam Ras Das. This is episode 48 with uh, Urmila Devi Dasi. Uh, Mother Urmila, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today on the podcast. Yes, yes. So uh, today we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic, spiritual organizations, a dance or bureaucracy. So uh, before we get into that topic, I'd really love to talk a little bit about your journey uh, briefly in Krishna consciousness, how you joined. I I read the article that you have on your website on uh, urmiladasi.com. I'll put that uh, link up for everyone who wants to read that. But uh, maybe we can go into that first before we get into the topic at hand today. Okay, well. Sure. When I was about four, I remember asking my mother why we were Jewish. And she said, well, because my mother's Jewish. And I said, well, why is she Jewish? She said, because her mother's Jewish. I said, you know. And then I said, that's not a very good reason. We should be something because it's true. And from that time on, I remember quite clearly whenever anyone asked me, what do you want to do with your life? I would always say, I want to find God. You know, I, I never had interest in a career. I never had interest in having a family. I mean, my interest was always, I want to find God. So when I was eight, I read an article about reincarnation, and I decided that I believed in that, although I didn't understand it very well. And when I was nine, I got very interested in India. I got a map of India that I put on my wall. I had little, like, Indian dolls, like you'd see in a tourist shop all over my room. I asked my mother, can you buy me a sari? And um, in those days, uh, that would be 1964. So there weren't very many Indians in the United States. And there really wasn't a place to buy a sari. My mother had a friend who'd been to India and who kind of made a sewn sari. You know, like they'll sew saris for little kids or sew right. right. I remember it was made of saffron silk. So I used to I used to wear that, and uh, when I was uh, twelve, I was visiting one of my older sisters who lived on the Lower East Side, right around the block from Twenty Six Second Avenue. And there was this man, Alan Coleman, who'd made a recording of Prabhupada chanting. I'm sure many of you have heard it. It's called the Happening Album. So he was trying to sell it. So he would play it in his shop, and his shop was called the Krishna Store. Mm. He used to sell clothes from India and posters. He had a lot of posters of Krishna and Hanuman and so forth. So I would go to his store and listen to this record of Prabhupada chanting. And that was my first contact with the movement. Um, that would be when I that was be 1967. So that was the first time. And I don't know. I mean, I used to regularly go to Tompkins Square Park. I don't remember. If I met the devotees there, it didn't make an impression on me, but I was always around there. And then in 1969, I heard on the radio Yamuna singing Brahma Samhita, the Govinda that we play in all of our temples. 
And right, you, said so you were you were combing your hair and you yeah. just stopped. And yeah. you were like, what is this? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I was 14. I was a 14-year-old girl, so every day I would be styling my hair as a typical 14-year-old girl. All right. So yeah, and I and I heard that on the radio and I went, whoa, what was that? You know, I, <laughs> on on the radio, they announce, I don't know if anyone listens to the radio anymore, but they announce a song either before it's played or after it's played. So in this case, they must have done it before I missed it. And I became obsessed. You know, what was that song? What was that song? So I started listening to the radio just constantly. And I heard it one more time. And then they announced that's the Radha Krishna Temple album. So I wrote it down. And then I had a dream, which I'd forgotten about. When I moved in the ashram, I was going through my papers and I found it, that I was going to the biggest record shop in New York City and asking for this record and that I owned every record in the whole world, but I didn't have that one and I wanted it. Anyway, I did get the record and inside there were pictures that were the same as the covers of Krishna book, volume one and volume two. I didn't know that, but anyway, I cut them out and I put them on my wall. There was philosophy in the record. I couldn't understand it at all, like not at all. What? <laughs> I didn't make any right. sense. Anyway, one day I was in the library in high school, in secondary school, and this boy, Bill Trengrove, who, I mean, I knew his name. I didn't really like know him. He was like a friend of a friend of a friend. So he was reading Krishna book and it had on the cover the same picture that I had on my wall from the record. And I'm like, hey, Bill, what's that book? And he said, you want to check it out? So I just during a study hall, you know, I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, you know, just look at the pictures. And then I give it back to him at the end of study hall. He said, would you like to come with me to the temple? I'm like, temple? What temple? <laughs> you know, I, I had no idea that there was a movement or, yeah, I mean, the movement was pretty small then. Right. So I said, sure. You know, I was kind of up for anything. Yeah. Adventurous type person. So I, I'm like, sure. You know, and then I just told my parents, I'm going to a temple in New York with this guy from high school that I barely know. <laughs> you know my mother was kind of like, what are you doing? Uh, anyway, we went there for the Sunday feast and a devotee preached to me. I'm pretty sure it was Jadarani for hours. And after that, I remember we were in the subway station, Bill and I, to go back. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, I accept everything that she said as the truth. Wow. And I said, I couldn't explain it, but you know, I couldn't explain it to someone else, but. So then we went back the next Sunday and uh, then we met someone else. And I said, what do I have to do to join? And unfortunately, by my destiny, whatever, <laughs> she didn't say, you know, chant Hare Krishna and follow these four rules. I mean, I know a lot of devotees who don't talk about the regulative principles in an initial talk, but I always bring them up because this girl didn't do that. Yeah. She she didn't she didn't give me any kind of sadhana at all. She looked at me in this guy, and I don't know, 14 year old girls, you can't always tell. Are they 14? Are they 16? Are they 20? It's it's not quite as easy yeah. to tell a girl's age as a boy at that age. Anyway, I don't know. She must have thought this guy was my boyfriend or I don't know. She just said, we have no room in the temple. You'll have to get your own apartment. 
So, you know, I'm 14. I'm going to get my own apartment. Like, <laughs> what is she talking about? Right. And so I always figured, well, I can't become a Hare Krishna because I need to be able to have my own apartment. Because <laughs> that was her answer. You know, what do I have to do to, to join? You have to get an apartment. Um, but after that, anyone who, I never went back to that temple. Yeah. After that, the devote, whenever anybody would ask me, what do you believe in? I'd say, Hare Krishna. And they'd say, do you practice any of it? And I'm like, no, because I thought the practice was you had to get an apartment. <laughs> so, you know, I bought Easy Journey to Other Planets thinking that it would be about, you know, far out, like astral travel, which it wasn't. And so I didn't read much of it. And I was doing my own meditation at that time. I was regularly, for a long, long time, I was regularly doing my own kind of invented meditation. And meditation was not a thing in the world then, like it is now. Uh, anyway, I was doing that. And my idea was basically impersonal. I mean, I had a big poster of Krishna up on my wall, and I would play the Radha Krishna Temple album, but my, my idea of spirituality was impersonal. And so I was meditating with the idea that I was going to merge into God. And then uh, one time I started to, actually. I had this very strong experience, and I, I, was, I was 17, and I decided I don't want to merge into God. I don't want to become one with God. I, I, I kind of freaked me out. I mean, it's interesting when I read Briya Bhagavatamrita, how Gopu Kumar is being drawn into the Brahma Jyoti, and he, he panics. And he's like, I don't want to go. So I, I, I had that experience. And uh, then I thought, well, my whole life I've wanted God. My whole life I've wanted spirituality. I never wanted, I mean, really never wanted anything else. And I thought, now I was given spirituality, and I found out I don't want it. So it was kind of a crisis. And I decided, well, I guess I want to be a materialist. Then. That was the only other option. Right. And Prabhupada talks about this, how impersonalists, once they achieve some perfection, they, they actually don't like it. They want relationships. They want. So I, I started college soon after that and i really tried hard for the first couple months to be a materialist i mean i really really like jumped feet first into let me be a materialist which of course uh, is not a very satisfying way to live and so after a couple months of really doing my best to be a full-on materialist i i prayed one day and i said i don't know who you are and i chanted the Hare krishna mantra and i chanted what's called the shema in hebrew and i said the lord's prayer well, I should also mention when I was 14, I read, I, when I was 14, when I first visited the temple, I was also studying at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. Right. And uh, I asked some questions about the Bible. I said, you know, you're saying God has no form, but he's writing on the tablets with his finger. How does he have a finger if he has no <laughs> form? And they got really angry that I asked that question. <laughs> Like, don't don't ask that question. And then the other one I asked was, so God, so Moses gets the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai. Then he goes down and he sees the people are worshiping a golden calf and he gets really fried and he breaks the tablets. Goes back up the mountain and God's really fried. And God says, you know, 
I'm going to kill them all. We'll start for again from you and your descendants. You know, God's really angry. And then Moses reasons with him and says, you promised Abraham that his descendants would be like the stars in the sky and the sands on them. So you can't break your word. And then God says, yeah, you know, you're right. And so he doesn't kill everybody. So to devotees of Krishna, that story makes perfect sense. But to an impersonalist, it makes absolutely no sense at all. Like why God's getting angry and somebody's talking him out of it and he changes his mind. And it just made absolutely no sense. So I went to the rabbis and asked about that. And again, they were really nasty. You know, I dare ask this. And, uh, which that experience really formed me as a teacher of Krishna consciousness to welcome what appears to be heretical questions, to make people feel very comfortable to ask questions that seem offensive or heretical. I mean, in my Bhakti Shastri class, I encourage all the students to ask those questions. And one of my former Gurukul students, who now herself is a teacher of Krishna consciousness, I remember when she was 14 uh, in our class, she said, and this poor, poor Prabhupada's really criticizing Arjuna. And that seems to me to be Vaishnava Parad. I mean, how do you explain that? <laughs> you know, I think uh, in many ISKCON temples, if she'd asked that in a Shastra class, she would have been ostracized. But I said, wow, that's a great question. You know, let, let's look at this. So anyway, I had that experience. And having had that experience, I decided to explore Christianity. So I studied the Gospels and the Bible, the four Gospels. And I personally accepted Jesus as my Savior, which I never told my parents that I did that. They would have been horrified. Right. But so anyway, that's, that's the background. So here I am, 17, and I'm, I'm in college, going back a little bit. And... I started praying and I said the Hare Krishna mantra and Shema Yisrael and the Lord's prayer. And I said, just please help me, please help me. You know, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are, but this life as a materialist is not working out. (laughs) It's really not, not what I wanted. So then I was with my best friend, Sandy, and she um, had a boyfriend. I can't remember his name, Zach, I think. Anyway, I was walking with her to her boyfriend's room, and his roommate had Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita lying on the floor of his room. And I saw that. This was, you know, a few days after I prayed like that. I saw that, and I said, isn't that the Hare Krishna book? And he's like, yeah. And I said, you know, could I borrow it? He said, yeah, somebody sold it to me on the street, and I never read it. So I took it back to my room, and my life stopped. I, I, I basically, I didn't go to any classes. And, I hardly slept and I hardly ate. I'm just turning the pages, you know, <laughs> what is this book? And I, I, I felt like I knew the book. I felt like it was, you know, like, I, like I was reading something I already knew. And that all the questions that I'd had and all the impressions that I had were there on the paper. I, I couldn't believe this book I was reading. It was just so astonishing. And then I decided, okay, that's it, you know. I'm joining the Hare Krishnas, whatever I do, you know, I'm going to join the Hare Krishnas. So the college I went to had a work study program every January and February. The college was in Vermont. Who wants to be in Vermont in January and February? So you had to do a work program, either paid or volunteer. And I ended up getting a volunteer position at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago. 
So when I went there, I was looking for the temple and this isn't gonna make any sense to people who aren't of a certain age, but I had to call information for Chicago to try to find the temple, but the temple wasn't in Chicago. It was in a suburb, it was in Evanston. So when I called information for Chicago, they didn't have anything. So I thought the, and the, there was a number in the Radhakrishna temple album, but that number wasn't any good anymore. The temple had moved. So I, I thought there was no temple in Chicago anymore. I mean, that was my idea in going there that I would go to the temple. So I, I would, at work, I would chant the Ishapanishad from the record. And I didn't chant Hare Krishna because there was no explanation given for the Hare Krishna mantra. And I wasn't into blind following. So, you know, but the Ishapanishad was there. So I would sit at work and as I was giving tours, I was chanting Ishapanishad. Wow. Two weeks before my the time was over and I would go back to classes, I met this one Brahmachari Yasamari Nandana on the L, on the train. And I was staying two blocks on the train on one side and the temple was two blocks on the train on the other side. So I hadn't seen the devotees on the street. Anyway, I saw him on the L and he was particularly cold and nasty to me. Uh, I think he was one of these like fanatic brahmacharis at the time. And I was a 17 year old girl, you know, and I, I said, where's the temple? Oh, it's two blocks away over there, you know. <laughs> and, you know, can I come, come for the Sunday feast? And, like he looks away from me, you know, and hands me this microphone. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't really look at me. And um, I said, I work on Sundays. You know, museum, your biggest days are the weekends. He's like, yeah, sure you do. I'm like, I do really work on Sundays. And he tries to sell me back to Godhead. And I said, I only carry a dime for a phone call. I don't carry money with me. Right. He's like, yeah, sure. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I got the address and... Uh, I visited the temple actually a couple of days later and I talked to a devotee, Chandra Shekhar, who later ran the prison program. And I, I said I was going to buy some incense. You know, I came there and buying some incense. And, uh, he ended up preaching to me for like two hours. And I remember I had these big, it was the winter time, I had these big boots on, I didn't want to take off. So I just stayed at the, on the stairs. And he said, why don't you move in and surrender? And I said, I don't want to surrender to anybody. You know, those were the counterculture days when, you know, you don't trust authority. You don't trust anyone over 30. You, you don't surrender to anybody. I said, I don't want to surrender. He said, you're already surrendered to so many people and so many things. Why not pick the best <laughs> one? And I thought, oh, my God, he knows my secret. <laughs> you know, I thought I, I've been trying to hide. I've been trying to pretend I'm independent like he knows, you know. Right. I came the next day and I met the temple president, Sri Govinda, and he says, we wake up early. And uh, I had always, my father woke up around five every morning my whole life. And I'd always woken up about five. And I said, always wake up early. Anyway, I said, we have these four principles. That was the first time anybody told me about the four regular principles. So he said, we have these four principles. Do you want to follow them? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'd like to do that. And uh, then I just moved in the temple. You know, I, I was 17, so I didn't tell my parents that I moved in the temple. I don't think temples today would do that. But anyway, no. uh, I just, you know, I just told the the girls I was staying with that if my parents call, just tell them I'm out and take a message, you know, and I'll call them back. So I stayed for two weeks. And uh, I remember then I went to the Sundar Artik that evening. One of the devotees dressed me in a sari, but I didn't know how to put it on. And 
I was dancing. As I was dancing, the police were coming out. Those days, saris were like nine yards of polycotton cloth, heavy, 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 heavy polycotton cloth. We had like 25 pleats in them. Oh my gosh. And they were heavy. And the cloth was so heavy to keep it on your head, you would do a safety pin. <laughs> and then it would gradually kind of move up during the day. <laughs> anyway, so my sari was coming off while I was dancing. I didn't know what to do with it. So it was just kind of coming off. And uh, Tamahar and Montrini were there, and their oldest daughter, who was about four at the time, she's just looking at me like, <laughs> So then the next morning, you know, I go to Mangalarti, and uh, that was the deciding thing for me. Going to Mangalarti, I said, oh, this is what I want to do. So, you know, while I was taking the train to work every day, you know, I'm in college and I'm thinking, what do I want to do with my life? Right? Yeah. What do I want to do? And looking at all the people on the train and none of them look happy to be going to work. Nobody. Nobody was like, I'm going to work at six in the morning. You know, nobody was like that. And I thought, whatever I do in life, after 10, 15 years, I'm going to look like these people. Yeah. I want to, I want a life where first thing in the morning, you know, it's exciting. And also what I'd been looking for was a way of spirituality that I could practice 24 seven. I didn't, you know, I was still doing my meditation thing, but I didn't want just something I could do for 15 minutes a day. I wanted something that was all encompassing. Anyway, so I went to one Mungo Archie and I'm like, yes, that's it. Get up in the morning and sing and dance. That's what I want for my life. Wow. You know, that's what I want to commit to. And so I then I was wearing T-lock and, and neck beads to work and I'd wear flower garlands to work and the devotees would give me prasadam and uh, I had an incredible experience with a sandesh ball, <laughs> I remember. And then you know I went went home and I told my parents I'm I'm joining the Hare Krishna movement, which my father immediately he said, I'm so glad you're looking for God. Wow. He said, I wish you would do it in Judaism, but that's not important. What's important is you're looking for God. Said I support you, and my mother freaked, right. just completely lost it. She's like, you know, you're a traitor to your people, and you're. Uh. Took my mother ten years to accept my being in the Hare Krishna movement, but my father was always very supportive. My father ended up becoming a life member. He met Prabhupada about five times. Amazing. Anyway, then I finished the year of college, going in sari and tilak. There's a whole lot of stories about that, and how I tried to cook like the devotees cooked and served for Sodom. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole story. And uh, at the end of that semester, I dropped out of college, which was what you did back then to join the yeah. Christian movement. You know, you, I gave my father back my car and I dropped out of college. I just left everything, you know, and uh, my, my family was very, very famous and very, very wealthy. And there I was with a little suitcase full of stuff I wasn't even sure, like, can you bring shampoo? You know, can you? I still had some impersonal ideas, you know, like, can you mm -hmm. use shampoo? You know, can you use pimple cream? Or <laughs> I just I didn't know if that would be allowed, you right. know, at the temple. And uh, I came home after college and everyone's pressuring me, don't do this, don't do this, you know. And I started wavering. And then I got in the mail on a Saturday an invitation to the installation of the deities of Kishore Kishore. For the next day, it came on a Saturday. 
And the installation was happening the next day on a Sunday. So I'm sitting at lunch with my family. We always ate lunch together on a Saturday. And I opened the mail and I could feel Krishna saying, you have to come now. You cannot wait. You must come now. Wow. So I looked at my parents. I said, I'm leaving tomorrow for Chicago. I said, that's it. And uh, my father said, okay. He said, I'll buy you a round trip ticket. So if you want to come home, you can come home. And those days you could, you could use the other half, you know, like for a year. Wow. <laughs> Very different uh, from today. I ended up cashing that in and buying a sleeping bag with it on me. <laughs> so yeah, then I show up at the installation of Kishore Kishori, and, uh, and then that was how I joined the Hare Krishna movement. Wow. And then eventually you got a PhD in education. That was a long time later because I had dropped, I dropped out of my bachelor's degree. So then I finished, I ended up finishing my bachelor's degree through independent study at two different schools. Okay. So I went to Mary Baldwin and then I went to Excelsior College of the University of the State of New York system. And I finally got my bachelor's. And then I got my master's and PhD. Uh, my master's is in school administration and MSA. So it's like an MBA, but for schools. And my PhD is a doctor of education, specializing in educational leadership. And I got that both from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. So that was a lot later. You know, it's interesting, had I known that I was going to end up running schools and being a teacher, which I had no idea when I was 18 and moved in the temple, that that's what I'd be doing. Like, absolutely no idea. I probably would have gotten degrees then. But Krishna didn't let me know. And what I did was I studied Prabhupada's books very extensively, especially after our first child was born. So I got married after a few months in the movement. And then uh, our son was born in 1974. And when he was a baby, we were taking meals at the temple. We didn't have any furniture to clean because furniture was Maya. You know, we had one rocking chair. Wow. So, you know, I had a, a small one bedroom apartment. I didn't really have anything to do. And we would go to the whole morning program. I'd get all my 16 rounds done in the morning program. So what I was I going to do all day except, you know, feed the baby and change his diapers. So I just read Prabhupada's books all the time. And, you know, it's just constantly reading, listening to Prabhupada's lectures, taking notes, you know, really, you know, the program that I did the first year and a half, of my, of my oldest son's life is the kind of thing today people pay a lot of money and time to like go to India for an intensive Shastra program. And I just right. dived into Shastra. So I think if I had known, I would have gone, I would have finished college at that time, but I'm really glad I didn't. Yeah. I'm glad I went deep into Prabhupada's books at that time and, and finished uh, later. Mm. Let's, let's talk a little bit now about um, the topic of this podcast which was about spiritual organizations and you've been in ISKCON now for almost 50 years and you've seen so much uh, of this you know of this organization it seems like that the word that the phrase spiritual organization is an oxymoron and I know you mentioned like when you were first you know joining the last thing you wanted to was probably to join a spiritual organization so can we talk a little bit about what does it mean to have a spiritual organization. Well, it's interesting you say that. You know, I I didn't want to join organized religion. I was right. leaving organized religion. I after a couple of weeks in this kind of like, oh my God, I think I've joined an organized religion. <laughs> <laughs> what did I do? Uh 
I didn't think that much about it until my graduate studies. Because studying school administration and studying educational leadership, we did a lot of study in organizational culture and organizational structure in regard to educational institutions, which are very similar to a religious or spiritual institution. So I've seen that many times when devotees study about organizations, they go to, for models, they go to for-profit corporations. Right. You could say, you know, in, 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 our, in Sanskrit, you know, Vaishya organizations for a model. Mm. But if you're taking an international society that has mostly volunteers, even people who get paid in ISKCON generally get paid far less than they're worth which yeah. makes me more or less a volunteer. You know, if I'm getting paid a fifth of my market value, I'm basically a volunteer. So volunteers and international, I mean, we are so international and so intercultural. And we have an intangible product. You know, Krishna Prem is a, a very intangible product. We're not selling, you know, chairs or something. Yeah, it's, so if you try to take the structure of like, a corporation with all paid employees that sells chairs and impose that on a spiritual organization, at least according to Srila Bhakti Sinanta Sarasvati, you're going to kill it. Srila Bhakti Sinanta has written this heavy essay, which I found that a lot of devotees who know about it ignore it, where he says that as soon as you have any kind of system, a mechanical system, you don't have spirituality anymore. It's finished. Yeah. And he talks about ordained clergy. You finish everything. And people ignore this because they think, well, Bhakti Sinanta had an organization. So they just don't know what to do with it. They think an organization has to look like a business corporation or it has to look like you know, a government like a national organization. Right. And, and when Prabhupada makes all these comments, strong statements against centralization and bureaucracy, that if you do that, you'll spoil everything. And one of my projects that, that I'll never do, but somebody should do it, is to compile all of the places where Prabhupada said, if you do such and such, you'll destroy this kind. That's very <laughs> It would be an interesting, I mean, I know one of them is if you see the deity worship as a burden. I know that's another, that's one of them. One of them is if you're guided by personal ambition. Right. You know, there's a number of them. But one that he repeats quite strongly is centralization and bureaucracy. He says, don't centralize anything. He says, I centralize books, but don't centralize anything else. And don't have bureaucracy. Can we talk about centralization and bureaucracy, just the definitions first? Yeah, sure. So I'm just going to pull up something. Sure. I don't think I can share my screen, can I? Yeah, I think you can. I can share my screen? Down at the bottom, you'll see share. Oh, look at that. If you oh, want to share, you can go ahead. Well, that's super cool. I didn't know I could do that. Well... Okay, let me find the right place then, because I wasn't—I wasn't prepared that you were going to give me that. That. Um, okay, that's all right. I can pull it up if you also. If no, that's fine. That's okay. fine. 
That's fine. Just give me a second here. Yeah, no problem. All right, so share screen. Screen share is, is easiest with two monitors. I don't have share screen share. Okay, two monitors. And application window. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Adding it to the stream. Yep. Okay. So let's look. Now I can't see you. But oh, you can't see me? No. Oh, you I can, can only see, see the... I can only see the light at the top of my screen that shows me that I'm on camera. Oh, okay. That's all right. All okay. Right. So we can look at organizational structure in terms of is it organic or mechanical? And the reason we're going to use these words is that Shula Bhakti Sinanta Saraswati used the word mechanical when he was saying any kind of mechanical arrangement is going to destroy spirituality. So the opposite of mechanical is organic. Right. Now, there are three ways to have a mechanical structure. Now, by the way, this comes from the top leaders in the world, people like Minsberg, who are the top gurus, you could say, of organizational structural understanding that teach in MIT and so forth. Okay, okay. so the to have things mechanical is standardized training. Everyone gets exactly the same training or practically the same training. That's the least mechanical. Think of, say, doctors. You know, mm -hmm. to, to become a doctor, you are going to get basically the same training as every other doctor. Then standardized end results. You know, all of the candles have to look the same way. So that's moderate mechanical. Then standardized ways of doing things. Think about a factory. You know, where you have the training is the same, the end result is the same, and your process is the same. So that's the strongest mechanical system. Then organic, you've got a small organic structure called a simple structure, where you have, it's usually a very small group, and one leader does everything. One leader manages everything. And then informal organic is where you have changing teams who collaborate. All right, so centralization, we can use the memory device ICE, and then we're going to add an A after each of them. So these are the aspects of centralization. Information, advice, choice, authorization, execution, and action. So the more of these that are controlled by one person or a group of persons, the more your organization is centralized. What information comes in? Think about governments that censor the press. Right. Okay. Then the advice you get about what information you're going to follow. Then the choice you make according to that advice and information. Then who gives the authorization? Who says, yes, this is what we're going to do? Mm -hmm. Who executes that? and the actual action that's performed. So, yeah. So Srila Prabhupada was basically saying that if you, the more centralized that we make ISKCON or the Hare Krishna movement, that that, that will be detrimental. Not just detrimental. <laughs> you're, you're softening it. Okay. He's saying it will, it will kill it. It will destroy it. Hmm. It's the same thing that Bhakti Siddhanta said. It destroys it. It's not detrimental. We're not talking about a disease. We're talking about death. I see. Okay. Now, we're talking about a spiritual death. You know, you could be, I guess, I've never seen a zombie movie, but you, you could be like a zombie. You know, you're a walking dead person. Right. 
So we see religious and so-called spiritual organizations where there's no spirituality in them or very little. Everybody's familiar with this. Yeah. Right? So the organization might be going on in name. Prabhupada uses the word show bottle. Mm. Like he had a pharmacy and you have a bottle, he says, you put in the window of colored water. You know, you're not going to put a, a real medicine in the window. Right. So it, it looks like medicine, but it has no efficacy. So centralizing and bureaucratizing the organization destroys the potency. So it's interesting that the main power is with people who gather information. And this makes sense, right? Yes. Because everything's based on information. This is why dictatorships restrict information. Right. So whoever controls what information you have has the most power in the organization. Okay, now let's look at structure. So here we have this uh, statement from Bhakti Siddhanta, where he says, the original purpose of the established churches of the world may not be always objectionable. So there may be a good reason for doing something. As my mm -hmm. father used to say, the way to hell is paved with good intentions. Right. And then he says, but no stable, note this word stable. No stable religious arrangement for instructing the masses has yet been successful. You think, don't we want stability? Yeah. But he's saying no. The Supreme Lord Sri Krishna Chaitanya, in pursuance of the teachings of the scriptures, enjoins all absence of conventionalism for the teachers of the eternal religion. It does not follow that the mechanical adoption of the unconventional life by any person will make him a fit teacher of religion. Regulation is necessary for controlling the inherent worldliness of conditioned souls, but no mechanical regulation has any value even for such a purpose. So regulation is necessary, but not mechanical. The bona fide teacher of the religion is neither any product nor the favor of any mechanical system. In his hands, no system has likewise the chance of degenerating into a lifeless arrangement. So that's why we were looking at mechanical and organic. Right. What's full of life versus what's mechanical. Here's a letter from Prabhupada. You want to make big plan for centralization. I do not at all approve. Do not centralize anything. And if I did not interfere, the whole thing would have been killed. Prabhupada's not talking about crippled. He's not talking about detrimental. These are all nonsense proposal. Only thing I wanted was that the books, printing, and distribution should be centralized. Forget the centralizing and bureaucracy. Can, can you give an example of what he was meaning, like in that letter? Like, what was what spurred him to say that this will that what you what you're central or trying to centralize will will destroy the movement? Like a real centralized finances, okay, and direction. You know, there's other letters where Prabhupada will talk about that each temple should be separately incorporated, and that each temple should manage their own affairs. When I was working with uh, Jai Krishna Prabhu on the GBC succession committee, we got to go through, I think it was all, I didn't do the research. I was just looking at the results of the research, but he said he was giving me all of Srila Prabhupada's instructions about the GBC, the role of the GBC. We mm -hmm. were wanted us to write a job description of the GBC. It was very informal. 
you know, the GBC was to travel in formal Lisa centers to make sure people were chanting their rounds and following the principles and going to Mangalarti to make sure basic standards were going on. And basically the GBC were to be like a traveling Sankirtan party, you know, traveling party. And it was, it was a very, you know, Prabhupada wanted the basic things to be done, but it wasn't some kind of heavy management control at all. It was things, he wanted the local leaders to know how to do everything. And right. So decentralized in that sense. There's a very good book called The Starfish and the Spider about decentralized organizations. And one of the most decentralized organization is Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. Where anybody can start an Alcoholics Anonymous center. You have to follow the 12-step program, but that's it. And there's really no centralized management at all, which is more extreme than what you would probably wanted. But if we think about how successful Alcoholics Anonymous has been yeah. as an organization and in helping people, and they've had so many spin-offs, whatever, Overeaters Anonymous or whatever. Um, it is possible to have a decentralized organization that survives and persists and grows. It's not that you need to, you know, centrally manage everything. And, and doing so creates an organizational culture I mean, if, if we want to look at the reasons why we don't want to go to centralization, it, it changes the culture of the organization so that people become stifled. You know, then you, ha you have, a, you know, in Starfish and Spider, they detail a number of decentralized organizations and sort of a continuum of how decentralized that you would be. So to have it, and Prabhupada talked about this in terms of bureaucracy also. He said, don't, don't say they made a mistake. He said, don't use they, that's bureaucracy. Yeah. He said, you are all they. <laughs> right. You know, that, that we take responsibility. It's like you, if you say ISKCON has done this and ISKCON has done that, you usually mean like the tell presidents and the GBC, but you know, I'm ISKCON. I mean, right. the day you look in the mirror and go, hey. I'm as much ISKCON as anybody else. But we don't have a system set up in ISKCON that I've seen where people are encouraged or trained to take that kind of responsibility. You know, and, and if you do so, you're often wholly or partially demonized. Right. You know, everything is supposed to be under this very tight authoritative structure which is centralization, you know, and that, that's not what Srila Prabhupada wanted. It just isn't. If we think about the, the Bhakti Vriksha program is a nice example of something where, you know, you get 15 people and then you branch off and people take responsibility and there's, there's guidance and there's a program that you start your own program. And that program is very much modeled on a decentralized approach. Now, what we've seen practically is that the, the main work of ISKCON is going on to a large extent in a decentralized way. Right. As fewer and fewer people live in ISKCON temples and on ISKCON property, more and more members start their own programs in their home or whatever, or you know, nowadays online, they start their own things. 
They're ISKCON members, they're gurus or ISKCON gurus, they're following Srila Prabhupada, but it's not like, you know, it's not that they're not under the GBC, but they're not really under the ISKCON hierarchical authority. They're not checking with somebody, you know, what am I going to do today? And what, you know, and nobody's coming and checking up on them and what are you doing today? And what I've seen as I travel the world is at least two thirds of the spread of the movement is happening in that way. And some leaders don't like that. Yeah. You know, we have some leaders who are, who really push against it. And we have some places where there's even labels put on people that, you know, that then you're not a full-time devotee, which really strikes me as, as a, a very pejorative, you know, you're, I'm a part-time devotee because I've started my own preaching center or because I have programs in my home or because I teach my own online courses or, or something like that. Somehow I'm not fully committed to being a devotee. So we've, we've been marginalizing or demonizing a natural decentralization process for decades, but people are doing it anyway. They're just, you know, I think it's the natural from which the Bhakti Siddhanta said, it's the natural flow of spirituality. So it's what I would suggest to the leaders of our movement is that they notice that the natural flow of spirituality is already happening. And to find a way to work with that and find a way to cooperate with that natural flow. Now, part of the ability to do that is separating in your head the idea that organization and centralized bureaucracy are synonymous. That, that for an organization to be to exist as an organization, it has to have centralization and bureaucracy. That, that's just not true. I mean, the examples of organizations in the world, the research by the top leaders in organizational understanding. It's just not true. So 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 the so what you're saying is that ISKCON as an organization doesn't have to be centralized and doesn't have to have bureaucracy for it to thrive and to grow and to continue. In fact, those things are stifling its growth and continuance and, and everything else. Wow. Exactly. So then so then the role of the the role of the GBC to say, or, or the leaders of the movement, where, where does that take their role? Their, their role only becomes like a spiritual. No, spiritual it's not that they have no leaders. managerial role, right? but in, in a decentralized organic institution, there's a lot of changing roles. People, right. people join different and probably writes about this, although I don't have that at the tip of my fingers where you set up like a committee or a group for some purpose. And after that purpose is finished, the committee disbands. I mean, I know myself, I, I have been and am a member of all different sorts of little groups in ISKCON. Sometimes just me and one other person, sometimes me and 10 people yeah. get together for a particular purpose. And in that purpose, I have a particular role. I might be the leader of the group. I might be the assistant to the leader. I might be just a member of the group. I might be a researcher in the group. We have a particular purpose. We accomplish that purpose. And then later I'm part of another group. And in that group, I may have a different role. 
I may be a leader of one group and a member of another group. And and it's it's a it's a changing, it's not a fixed org chart. I mean, one of the things you'll have in typically in a bureaucracy is a very fixed org chart. Who reports to whom about what? Right. Whereas in a in a spiritual organization, a non-centralized, non-bureaucratic organization, that's in flux. Yeah. How how did it become the way it is now? Was it was it due to like the zonal acharya time that this no, kind of came no. about, or was it? It's it's a natural thing, just like entropy. You know, things naturally degrade. Therefore, Krishna says, "Yada yada hi dharmasya glanir bhavati bharata bhutanama dharmasya tadatmanam srijamiham." Dharma becomes a dharma. It happens naturally. So bureaucracy involves standard ways of doing things. Remember, we looked at what makes my mechanical standard training, standard output, standard processes. So the larger an organization gets, the more it sees similar situations in space. As it grows, you know, it runs into a particular situation over here, and then it runs into a similar situation over here, and it runs into a similar situation over here. And then people in the organization say, oh, why don't we take the solution we used over there and use it over here? Right. Oh, why don't we take that and use it over here? And pretty soon it becomes the solution. And pretty soon you have a rule book. If this happens, apply this. And the same happens over time. The more an organization goes over time, the more it's likely to come in contact with a similar situation over time. And so the more it gets bigger over time, the more it's going to contact similar situations over both space and time. And then it just seems so much more efficient if I have a standard response. And why not codify that response? Why not mandate that response? Why not have a punishment and reward for doing that response or not doing that response? Why not have people who make sure that that's the response that's done? And if it's not done, you know, you're out. Why not do that? Why, why give people the ability to respond differently to a similar situation in a personal way? When I can have, you know, this happens, do this. That's what you do with a machine. Yeah. Now, even with a machine, that doesn't work perfectly. You know, my computer was overheating, so they replaced the fan and that didn't work. Then they replaced what they now call the systems board, used to be called the motherboard. You know, it might be this, it might be that. They don't always know, even with a machine. With the physical body machine, the Yantra, what Krishna calls a yantra, the machine, the doctors really don't have that absolutely down. You know, that this is this happens in the body. Oh, you have to do this. The a good doctor will adjust the treatment according to the individual. You know, it, it's not all just in a flow chart. And that's the body. What to speak of when you're dealing with souls? <laughs> You're dealing with minds, you're dealing with souls. How can you have a standardized response? There's a standardized process, which is again, the most mechanical system. 
And then you want to standardize output that everyone's going to dress the same. Everybody's going to think the same. Everybody's going to talk the same. And then to achieve that, you want standardized training, which is becoming more and more popular in our movement. Right. You know, the concept that somebody's going to arrange the training and that's going to, and that's going to be what everybody gets trained. And we're going to mandate that everybody gets that kind of training to have these particular processes, to have these particular results. So that happens naturally over time. It's not, it's not the result of, you know, anybody's bad, whatever. <laughs> it's not the result of this or that particular historical event. It's just what happens when organizations grow over time and space, unless there's intentionality to avoid that. It's like a building will fall apart unless there's intentionality to avoid that. It just will. You have to expect that a building is going to fall apart unless you intentionally look for signs of it falling apart and you get it back. You, you correct course. Yeah. Like an airplane or a boat or a car. You know, the, the, you have to be doing course corrections periodically. So that is what's not been done. And it's not been done because... I don't know, somehow other these these instructions about centralization and bureaucracy and mechanical and living systems somehow didn't translate into something that was important. Again, my own personal belief, which may not be correct, is that people just couldn't wrap their heads around it. It's what, quite what, yeah, what, what does an organization look like? that's organic and decentralized? I mean, that's the main question. I go, what does it look like? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, and, and that's why like on my website, I list, I have places where you can find examples of different organizations. I mean, as a religious organization, the Quakers are very decentralized and non-bureaucratic, for example. Mm. And they're a very successful religious organization in terms of longevity, in terms of members, and in terms of effect on the society. You know, the Amish are to also to a very large extent like that, decentralized and non-bureaucratic. Is there an example of a society or a spiritual organization that did die because of becoming centralized? Well, again, when you're looking at death, you have to look at potency. I, I don't know. What do you think of the Catholic Church? I mean, if you if you look at, say, St. Francis of Assisi, if you're familiar with that history, yeah. and... He wanted to stay within the church. He didn't want to overthrow the church. He didn't want to just start his own thing outside. He didn't want to start his own church. So he was submissive to the authority of the church, but he was pretty point blank. You know, you're, you're rotten. Mm, yes. you, you, you lost it. You lost the, the tune. You lost the melody. You're, you're off track. Now, you know, the way that the church dealt with him was had him form his own order within the church. So rather than reform the church as a whole, he reformed a piece of the church. Which is which is one way of dealing with diversity and reform. There's, there's three main ways. But, I mean, that's just an example. And I think that we can say in a lot of the great religions of the world, 
there's a lack of life. Yeah. You know, and there's often like split off groups that try to revive the life in that religion. And some of them succeed and some of them don't. But that religions become lifeless is something that Krishna himself talks about. That it needs to be constantly revived. You know, you need to have this course correction very frequently. It's it's not something you're going to do just, I mean, Krishna says, you gay, you gay, which is a big, you know, probably translates that millennia, but it's actually a lot longer than a millennia. It's it needs to be done very frequently. I mean, we just think about, say, Gaudiya Vaishnavism and what had happened at the time of Bhakti Vinod and had how he had to work to purify it. And then we see that there was more course direction had to be done by Srila Bhakti Siddhanta and then more that had to be done by Srila Prabhupada. Right. And I see that in our movement, we tend to be alert to philosophical deviations. We, we, were, we, we watch for that. We look for that. We try to correct yeah. We don't seem to be alert to organizational structure and organizational culture deviations. We don't seem to recognize that they're even meaningful or relevant. And as I say, these instructions from Srila Prabhupada and Srila Bhakti Siddhanta are mostly sidelined as incomprehensible. That is just, what are they talking about? They had an organization. I mean, that's the response I'll get. Well, they had an organization. Yeah. Well, what are they talking about? I, I got to get myself some more water. If you can just give me a second. Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Put your questions and comments in the comment section. We will present them uh, in a in a bit. Uh, this is a very fascinating discussion. However, like my my main question, I think, would be. How do we move toward, how do we kind of set that ship straight the way you said Bhakti Vinod Thakur did and Bhakti Zidanta did and Prabhupada did? So do you think there is a way to do that now with such oh, a absolutely. large organization, international, with so many people, with a very established you know, authority? Well, there's several ways of doing it. One I've already talked about where people just start doing it. Right. And... It just it, and it just becomes irrelevant what the official line is doing. It just it just becomes irrelevant. Yeah. And the movement starts spreading to every town and village in a decentralized, non-bureaucratic way by the members. And ironically, often the push to keep things centralized and bureaucratic drives that. <laughs> so you know you're you're. You've got all this talent, you've got all this education, you have all this experience, and you come to ISKCON, and I've seen this dozens of times, if not hundreds, and you say, okay, I'm willing to offer, I can see myself here on the screen, I'm willing to offer my services in it as an expert in this or that, and you're told no. I mean, there's one temple, I see if I can find this, I have a picture of it on my phone. Don't ask me where it is because I want to. <laughs> but uh, see if I can if I can find that sign. Yes, to all devotees, this is a real sign in a real ISKCON temple. 
Please, if you have any ideas for voluntary service that you would like to offer, that is very nice. But first, all caps bold, write your ideas down on paper. Then <laughs> submit those ideas to one of the temple authorities to get your idea approved and authorized before doing it. So we can arrange exactly how that service will be conducted and combine with other services that are needed and being performed or with the overall plan we have for the temple projects. Thank you, temple management. So, you know, wow, this floor is dirty. I think I'd like to sweep it. <gasps> Write it down. Submit it to temple management. Get it authorized. We have Get this like obsession. We have this like obsession with authorization. So that it fits into our overall plan for running the temple. Right. You know, and what's the result of that? People do their own thing. Yeah. People people just say, well, okay, fine, you know. I'll I'll make my own prasadam card on the streets. I'll start my own donut plant. I'll have my own, you know, I know a devotee who's very, very, very successful for years doing an online Bhagavad Gita course, a yoga retreat center with an online Bhagavad Gita course. And it's, it's very successful financially, and it's very successful at making devotees from a wide demographic. It's not just hitting the Indian demographic. Wow. And very, very successful. But, you know, who cares about it? But he's just doing it. Yeah, he's just doing it. I mean, and I know of many instances like that all over the world. So one way things will change is that people will just go and do it, and they're still loyal to ISKCON and they're still part of ISKCON and they respect the GBC and so forth and so on. But they're just doing their own thing. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of leaders do that too. Yes, <laughs> I mean, I, uh, many of them. They'll just do their own thing. They'll even start their own nonprofit and do their own thing and, and start their own, you know, whatever it is, their own farm or their own school or their own preaching project or their own restaurant or whatever they're going to do, uh, their own books and their own seminars. And that's one way. And then whatever the technical organization does just becomes less and less relevant. Now, the sad part about doing it that way is I personally can't imagine that Srila Prabhupada would be really happy with the fact that it's, if it only happens now. You know, I, I, I mean, to say I know what Prabhupada would want is a lot of hubris, but that, that Prabhupada would say, oh yes, this is exactly how I envisioned it. I, I find that a little, a little difficult. Uh, I come to peace personally with the fact that if it does happen that way and only that way, it's still happening. And that uh, Mahaprabhu's movement and Shil, particularly Shil Prabhupada's vision and Prabhupada's movement is still going on regardless of people's, you know, whatever, whatever anyone's doing in another direction. And so that's, that piece I've come to has reduced my own sense of urgency in trying to fix. Right. You know, I used to think I have to fix everything. I have to fix everything. I'm getting very frustrated. Uh, so that's that's one thing. But there's another way, and I could go back. Uh, I have to find. Uh, okay, I'm going to start, I think, at this slide. And I'm going to go back to screen sharing, if I could, for a few minutes. Sure, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, so this is looking at organizational culture, which is very much uh, connected to organizational structure. And you notice that we have four components here, flexibility, stability, internal focus, external focus. Mm -hmm. And these are four main types of organizational culture. There's called the adhocracy culture, a family culture, a hierarchy culture, and a market culture. By the way, these are very related to the four varnas. Wow, interesting. So an adhocracy culture is governed by mutual adjustments. It's somewhat informal. As we say, there's informal groups that are coming together. People adjust each other. A family culture is governed by norms and principles. A market culture is governed by meeting commitments. A hierarchy culture is governed by formal rules. Adhocracy culture is best if you're dealing in the realm of ideas and knowledge. A family culture is best if you're dealing with people. A market culture is best if you're dealing with resources. And a hierarchy culture is best if you're dealing with process and skills. And how, how are things managed? How is there like discipline <laughs> so that people do what they're supposed to do? In an ad hocracy culture, it's by collaboration. In a family culture, it's by cooperation. And those aren't quite the same thing. It's a little bit more authoritarian in cooperation than collaboration. A market culture by competition and a hierarchical culture by control. And I'm not going to say, but I think you can understand how these relate to the four partners. Right. It's fairly obvious. Now, if we look at this, we'll, we can also have some idea of what kind of culture Shiva Prabhupada talked about and what kind of culture we keep moving to in ISKCON. Mm -hmm. All right. So to be a cultural engineer, we're talking about making change in the technical ISKCON itself. So then we have to look at how can we create or change organizational culture. So this is what the leaders, now leader doesn't just mean a title. It means anyone who really is an influencer in ISKCON. What do you pay attention to? That signals to people what's important and what's not important. Right. Their own role modeling, teaching, coaching, their reaction to critical incidents. How do they deal with critical incidents? The criteria they use for selection, reward, status, and termination. What kind of a person do you have to be? How do you have to be acting? How do you have to be behaving? So that, that's, that's really basically your answer there. And we'll move to the other in a second. But this is your answer, how culture can be changed. Right. By the way, this is how parents shape their children's culture. This is how nations shape their, their culture. What do you pay attention? What gets on the news? What doesn't get on the news? Right. What do you teach? What do you model? How do you respond to critical events? Who gets jobs? Who gets awards? Who gets status? Who gets marginalized? Who are the heroes? Who are the villains? And how do members learn the organizational culture? By stories, by rituals, by symbols, and by language. Hmm. 
That's very, that's very fascinating. Let's look at the comment section. I usually take the questions at the end, but there's a lot of questions and comments on uh, what we're talking about at the moment. Let's look at some of them here. Um, have always personally focused on informal, like Kuli Mela. Great to see this set out in detail, but have found even informal needs a core that maintains some definition. How to maintain standards? Good question. Okay, well, you can have standards in an ad hocracy. It's, but it's a collaborative, flexible approach where you decide in a collaborative way what your standards are. Now, you could also go to a family culture. And Prabhupada talked about a family culture that has norms and principles. Yeah. Principles are different from rules, you know, which is why it's called a family culture. You know, most families have some rules, but families mostly have principles, right. like kind to each other. You know, like I, I spent some time with my great grandsons who are one and, and almost three. And so I tell the three year old, don't grab things from the one year old. You could say that's a rule. But then I'll say, unless it's dangerous. And there are times we do grab things from the one year old. I mean, Right, right. Sometimes it's not even dangerous. I mean, the one-year-old had crayons the other day, and I know I went to take the crayons away from him because I didn't want him marking up the floor and breaking the crayons. And then I had to turn to the three-year-old and say, well, this isn't dangerous, but he's going to make a mess. Mm. You know, so you really got to have a whole set of rules about grabbing toys. You know, you're going to come up with a whole rule book. Well, you grab toys under this circle and this happens is, or do you have some kind of a principle that we show respect for other people's property? And we have, we have an, or we show respect for what other people are using, that we deal with people respectfully. So you have more of a principle that then you're going to apply differently with different people and you keep the flexibility that you're going to apply that principle differently with different people in different situations. And you may apply it in ways that are opposite. You may, you may counsel one couple to stay together and another couple to divorce that apparently have the same, same situation. Or like when Prabhupada dealt with a people who hadn't been chanting their 16 rounds. And one of them, he said, stop everything and just chant 64 rounds a day. And he said, I'm writing a separate letter to the town president telling him to give this facility. And someone else, the same month, Prabhupada wrote to someone in a seemingly identical situation. And Prabhupada said, at least chant for an hour a day. I don't know anyone who can chant 16 rounds in an hour. So, and Prabhupada <laughs> even mean Japa Bhajan, I don't know. So, so it's a very alive thing. It's not something yes. that's right. Yes. And it's decided in a collaborative way. Not even a, not, cooperation can imply in a family, like I'm the mother, I'm the father, you have to cooperate with me. But collaborative is a much more peer. It, it loses this, this hierarchy. Yeah. And one big advantage of having more of a collaboration is in studies of policies that work. This is a whole other seminar. But um, if you're going to make policies that get implemented and that give you the results you want, because there's what we call the law of unintended consequences, where policies will sometimes yield the result that's opposite to that which you intend, which Prahlad Maharaj talked about. 
So one of the ways that you get policies that are actually implemented is you get what we call the street level bureaucrats to be on board. You get the people who are actually going to put the policies into action that they're also, they're, they have genuine buy-in. And it's really hard to do that, almost impossible from a top-down approach or even a cooperative approach. It's really only possible in a collaborative approach. So you can have a festival where there is a collaborative approach. There's principles and norms. There's changing structures. Now, sometimes a person in a particular position has to just make a decision. If you ask everybody about everything all the time, you'd never get anything done. You'd never go ahead. So sometimes, you know, and, and people want that. They want the person who's the chair of the event or the organizer of the event to be able to make their own decisions. You know, it's not that, it's not that the person putting up the tents wants to have a say in everything. That's, mm. that's ridiculous. You know, but, but there's this balance between, okay, I'm doing this particular job at this particular time, and I can just make a decision. I don't have to consult with everybody and collaborate with everybody because they've already given me their approval that I can make those decisions. But for the overall thing, it's a collaborative approach. Does it take more time? In the short run, yes. In the long run, no. Because once people are really on board with the vision and once people are they'll take it and run with it. Right. You know, they'll be so much more engaged and, and, and so much more enthused. And yes, some people will do something that you'll look at and go, oh, that was a little funky. I don't know if we wanted that to be done. But that's a very small price to pay for having a whole group of people that are taking a huge amount of responsibility. And if by trying to avoid anybody ever doing anything that's a little funky, you try to control everybody all the time. I mean, that also means you think you're never going to do anything funny. Right. You know, that I absolutely know what everybody should be doing all the time, which is just a little bit of hubris there. I have a question regarding when you were saying how as an organization becomes less centralized, the authority will become less relevant. So in our example of ISKCON, as we become less centralized, you're saying it's naturally happening. How does the authority, i.e. the GBC, how do they make themselves more relevant? Because there's some wonderful, they're all wonderful devotees that they have so much to offer. I, I know most of them personally. And they they have are. so much to offer. So how, do, how to make it more relevant? Um, by recognizing reality. <laughs> you know? I read once about a nursing home where people had, you know, they were struggling. And so they they created like an illusion, like a Hollywood set that looked like when they were young and then they were happy. <laughs> I mean, I had a tell president tell me in the, I guess it was 2001. He said, you know, my temple looks like 1974. Like that was a good thing. And I'm thinking, that's pretty weird. <laughs> You know, recognize reality. Right. What is actually happening in ISKCON? How is the movement really spreading? And study something of organizational structure and organizational culture. Yes. If you're going to be a leader in a spiritual organization where Srila Bhakti Santa Saraswati and Srila Prabhupada made these strong statements, 
let let's figure that maybe possibly it's just you know maybe they knew what they were talking about maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> i don't know i don't know you know Prabhupada's the founder of triviscon and his guru was bhakti sanatra who started the godi matami it's possible they were trying to make a point here yeah that they wanted us to pay attention to and especially Prabhupada using very strong language, the whole thing will be killed, the whole thing will be spoiled. You know, uh, Prabhupada using such heavy language like that. It, you know, maybe it should be something that we give as much attention to as we do, you know, whether or not you should dress the deities as Santa Claus. I mean, maybe we should. And say, we're not just concerned about the deity standards we're also concerned about the org. Now, to their credit, the GBC have looked at these things. They yeah. have an org dev committee and they have an org culture committee, but I've worked in that area and I have not, I haven't seen, maybe it's there, but I haven't seen it. And I have worked at that level that there's really an understanding of, again, these instructions from Prabhupada and Shula Bhakti Siddhanta. It's like there, there's a, an a priori assumption that the argument that that these instructions are somehow, I don't know, irrelevant, exaggerated, huh? Peripheral. <laughs> Peripheral, yeah. And and again, they just can't seem to wrap their head against around it. I mean, and I had one uh, devotee, former GBC. Please don't ask me who this is, who was saying you have to be bureaucratic in order to be organized. It's synonymous. I said, it's not. Mm. And I even said to this, look, this is my area of expertise, you know. Right. I didn't do any good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, people think like that. And it, it becomes this deeply embedded belief that centralization and bureaucracy are essential to maintain purity and fidelity. We will not have purity and fidelity to Srila Prabhupada unless we have a high degree of centralization and bureaucracy. But Srila Bhaktisanta is saying exactly the opposite. Purity and fidelity are finished when you have centralization and bureaucracy. Why? Because we're personalists. Krishna does not run this universe like a machine. He does not run it like a bureaucracy. The universe is alive. The universe is his body. The trees are his hairs on his body. The rivers are his veins. The oceans are his waist. The sun and the moon are his eyes. It's his body. And the Paramatma is the soul of the universal body. It's life. And it's responsive. The universe is responsive. The universe is run by persons, by the demigods, who can make decisions. You know, somebody prays to the demigod and they can make a decision. All right, I'll adjust your karma this way and that way. You know, that's Krishna does not run things like a bureaucracy. And certainly the spiritual world doesn't run like that. You know, it's, it's just not. The highest reality is a dance. It, it's a, in a dance, you're reciprocating in the moment. Vedic music is, is improvisation. It has a raga and talib, but like Western jazz, it's it's improvised. Yeah. It's not classical music that's cheap music. 
you know, and even then every orchestra is going to pay Beethoven's fifth a little differently. But the Vedic system is not like that. So for the leaders to, to say that these are really core, these instructions, oh, are there other forms of organization? If they didn't want centralization and bureaucracy, what did they want? What would these other things look like? What I see happening is more looking at a very mechanized, for-profit, corporate model and trying to superimpose that yes. on an international volunteer, subtle product, <laughs> yeah. intangible product. You know, we're, we're going to take a model of, let's say, a Canadian company that sells chairs and pays its employees to make a profit. And we're going to take that model and we're going to push ISKCON into that model. And there's a, a statement by a famous architect that form follows function. So if you create a form that's centralized and bureaucratic, that's mechanical, the function will become that. Wow. Personalism is not like that. It just isn't. And it's, it's interesting that Jilabhakti Sanat just said that even to regulate the senses, a mechanical system will not work. You cannot use a mechanical system even for that purpose. So if our leaders were to, it's difficult. You know, it's difficult. We, we have these established beliefs. We're older and it's very hard to change unconscious beliefs when you're older. It, it's very hard to understand that I have this, that, that I have an unconscious belief that is not truth. It's just my unconscious belief. Yeah. It, it, that's a very difficult thing for any of us to do. There's all kinds of things we believe that are not reality. So to be able to say, oh, this is just something I believe. And to look at it and then look at other forms and then start saying, all right, how can we then manage ISKCON for those forms? Now, there's another way to go about this that I think might be a lot simpler. The way I just talked about is a very logical, analytical way. Uh, but now let's go to a very intuitive way. And what's nice about an intuitive way is that it's possible through an intuitive way to kind of cut around the fact that people have these ingrained beliefs. We all do. We all have we all have unconscious ingrained beliefs that we just that to us are just truth. Yeah. Okay. So what what we do here. And I've done this. I've done this with leaders in Slovenia and leaders in Croatia. Why in those countries they're particularly open to this, I don't know, but they are. But not everybody is. We do a visioning exercise. So we say, all right, wherever I am. So like right now I'm in North Carolina. I'm in Hillsborough, North Carolina, a fairly small townish city place. Let's say all of North Carolina became in Lord Chaitanya's Sankirtan movement. You know, like Prabhupada talked about how Manipur might become the first Krishna conscious state. So all right, let's say the state that I'm in was to become Krishna conscious. And if that's too much, maybe the county, and I'm in Orange County, so the county, or maybe even just the city. 
you know, the city or the county. What would that look like? So we're successful. And it, it's good to do a little mind trick with this and say, all right, it's 2026. Or let, let's give it 10 years. It's 2031. It's 2031 now. Now is 2031. Right now. Mahaprabhu's movement has been successful, at least here in Orange County of North Carolina, or wherever you are. Anywhere we have people listening from all over the world, I can see that. Yeah. So, yeah. Wherever you are. And there you are, it's 2031, and you look around, you've gone by a time machine, landed in 2031. Wow, Mahaprabhu's movement is successful here. What do you see? What are people doing? What does success look like? And, and when I do this visioning exercise, I usually go through the varnas. So I'll say, okay, what's happening in the universities? Oh, I did this at the GBC College also. What's happening in the universities? What are people teaching? What kind of people are teaching there? What are the subjects they're teaching? What kind of degrees are being offered? What's happening in medicine? What's happening in religion? This is a big one. Is ISKCON the world church? <laughs> like the Catholic church used to be in France. And you know what happens whenever you have a world church or a state church, right? Yes? You know, yeah. history, persecution, torture. Yes. Okay, right. so is ISKCON the world church? Are there other religions going on? Are there Christians? Are there Muslims? Are there Jews? Are there Jews? <laughs> You know, is it like that kirtan rabbi kind of guy? You know, are, are there other religions, but they're having kirtan and they're engaged in bhakti? Or is, you know, are there other Vaishnavas? Are there still Sri Vaishnavas? Are there, you know, followers of Nimbarka Acharya, followers of Madhva? Are, are the Godis the only game in town? And is it only Iskand? Or all the all the other Godi groups are finished? You know, what does it look like? <laughs> What does it look like and how many temples and churches and stuff are in the area? But what does religion look like? It's a big question. And then schools for children. What does that look like? You know, what's happening in the schools for children? What's happening in the counseling professions and psychology? So you look at like the range in, in journalism, in media and publishing. Look at the range of Brahminical What's happening in publishing? What kind of books are being published? What kind of magazines? What kind of news shows are on the air? Then you start looking at government. What kind of governments are there? What who, who's running the government? Who's in the legislature? What kind of laws are they passing? What kind of taxation system is going on? What sort of police force is there? How is the infrastructure being maintained? What's happening with the military? And then what's happening in business? What kind of businesses are there? Are some businesses different than what it was back in 2021 before I got on my time machine? Are there some <clears throat> kinds of businesses? Are there some old ones that have gone out? You know, what's happening with business? What's happening with agriculture? What's happening with textiles? <laughs> you know, related to the first question about medicine, but what's happening with pharmaceuticals as a business? What's happening with animals? What's happening with the ecology? Then what's happening with the field of art and crafts and, and function? You know, what, what's happening with transportation? What's happening with uh, with sports? Are there still sports in the world? If so, what do they look like? 
We're kind I don't of think anyone out. can answer all this. We at least should be doing our best. Right. What were the are answers there, are there given? Still, are there still factories producing things? Is it all cottage industries? How are people getting, how are people communicating? And then you could look at the varnas. I mean, mm. the ashrams rather. You know, how old are people when they're getting married? How many children are they having? What kind of old age homes are there? What kind of retirement systems are there? So I look around, I do this visioning thing. Yeah. Half an hour, an hour, going through each of these. Wow. And then get back in my time machine, come back to 2021, and say, that's where I'm going. What am I going to do right now in ISKCON to get there? Because that's where I'm going. You know, they say, if you don't know where you're going, you're probably not going to get there. <laughs> I mean, like when I was a teenager and gas was 27 cents a gallon and we just got in cars and just went for a ride. You know, you borrowed your parents' car or maybe you had your own car or whatever, you know. Got together with your friends. Where are we going to go? I don't know. Let's go for a ride. <laughs> so let's get a vision for society. And it's all right if it's not perfectly exactly what it's actually going to be. It's okay if, if we don't get all the details exactly right. That, that doesn't matter. Right. But that that cuts through with things. That cuts through all these all these things. And then we're able to go, oh, ISKCON's not going to be the world church. <laughs> we don't even want to be. Yeah. You know, the GBC is not going to be the world government. The GBC chairman is not going to be the emperor running the world government and running the world's military. And, you know, and you don't even want to me. Ask anyone in the GBC, would you like to run the world's military? I go, heck no. Right. Do you want to make sure there's roads everywhere? And, you know, everyone has sewage. And... So then what would be ISKCON's role? If that's our, if, if we can see what our, what our visionary role is, then what are we going to do now? And then the answers just start being obvious because then what's happening is you're really pulling into, you're, you're really connecting with Mahaprabhu and, and Lord Nityananda, their vision. You're being open to their vision and then you're open to being empowered. And so that kind of intuitive way and then you can go to the analytical and say, oh, well, maybe we ought to study the work of, you know, org structural and org cultural specialists. <laughs> Help us with this a little bit. And then maybe we can put some names on things. And, and then we can maybe study some other organizations and other things. And we can, you know, we can go in that route. Yeah. So I, I would think that that's the way to do it. There's, there's a big resistance to doing this in, in some quarters. You know, I've had success, as I said, did do the GBC College, did it with Slovenian leaders and with Croatian leaders. But other times when I've mentioned this, I get pushback. Mm. And I'm like, no, we just want to do the visioning for our own little center. And I say, how can you do the visioning from your center when you don't know the role of your center in the bigger picture? Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at another question here. Um, 
How would the different departments of a non-bureaucratic organization work? I think you touched on this for sure, but maybe briefly you can answer. Yeah, well, you you can have, uh, you have different people with different responsibilities, but they're somewhat flexible right. according to what's needed at the time. And again, there's a lot of collaboration. There's a lot of, of consulting and working with people at all levels and to trust that people at all levels have good insights. I mean, there's a lot of books out there and a lot of courses out there that give very detailed examples of these kind of things. For education organizations, religious organizations, even business organizations. And, and how that they would how they would work. And there's more than one model for it. Right. And I, was, I remember reading about one where it was a, it was a factory even, and they asked the people on the line to be regularly making suggestions, and then they took them seriously. And so the people on the line started to take more and more of a leadership role in the organization. Their profit increased, their production increased, injuries went down. Job satisfaction went up when they started a more collaborative, more peer-based and flexible approach. Okay. Um, can a possible cause of the centralized nature of ISKCON as it is today be attributed to the part, in part to the over-deification of the position of Diksha Guru? or where the role of guru becomes conflated with that of GBC. Uh, and then he continues, I'm asking in, in, in the context, Chiksha Guru and Diksha Guru being considered the same. Yes, definitely. So the establishment of Diksha Guru and ISKCON as a post of institutional authority has definitely increased the tendency towards centralization. And it, it's, it's not... That idea is not in accord with Shastra or Srila Prabhupada's instructions or our tradition. It's another attempt to create purity and fidelity that does the opposite. So if we, you know, like Srila Prabhupada said about Srila Bhakti Siddhanta, I'm, I'm probably not getting the words exactly right, I can look it up. You know, that he said that he talked about so many important things. Did he miss this thing? How could he miss this thing? of how there would be gurus after his departure. Right. So I would do the same thing. Srila Prabhupada spoke on so many things. If Srila Prabhupada wanted us to have the kind of authorization system that we have, which has changed, I think, at least 15 times since 1978, which in itself indicates something, <laughs> uh, he would have said so, but he never did. And you know, Srila Prabhupada didn't care about the succession of his society. Who, who's going to say that? Yeah. Iskam wasn't a personality cult where, you know, you have personality cults where when the leader departs or whatever, the, the whole organization falls apart and the leader likes that. They want everything to fall apart in their absence because they want it to be all about them. If you've ever read uh, Jim Collins, Good to Great. So 
you know, a good leader is always thinking about succession, is, is thinking about the organization more than themselves, the health of the organization. So wouldn't you, Prabhupada, have been telling us over and over again how the parampara goes on, how the disciplic succession goes on? And it's like, well, we're just supposed to figure that out. We're supposed to figure that out? Why would Prabhupada have left something that crucial for us yeah. to figure out? And they'll say, well, Prabhupada didn't instruct us how to do it. No, but you're looking for the wrong kind of thing. You're looking for a bureaucratic system of doing that. And you don't see a bureaucratic system for doing that, so you create one. It has to be a bureaucratic system. It must be. It must be a centralized bureaucratic. I mean, Diksha Guru is one of the most centralized bureaucratic things we have in our movement, the authorization for Diksha Guru. Right. And they're thinking, well, it has to be centralized and bureaucratic. It has to be. And Prabhupada didn't give it. We have to create it. But maybe the whole premise is wrong. Maybe it doesn't have to be centralized and bureaucratic at all. Prabhupada says the system is whoever is a Shiksha Guru becomes a Diksha Guru generally. Diksha gurus aren't centralized or bureaucratic in this one, and it works just fine. And then we might, I mean, it just completely works fine. We don't have any official title of, you are an official authorized ISKCON Shiksha Guru. Right. <laughs> I'd like to introduce so-and-so Prabhu who's an authorized ISKCON Shiksha Guru. <laughs> and, and it's fine. We have people who deviate and we deal with them. And each... Each temple decides who sits on the Vyasasan. Each temple decides who does things in ISKCON's legal name. And it just works just fine. And, you know, we say, well, if we unregulate the Diksha gurus, we'll have bogus gurus. First of all, we've already had a lot of bogus gurus. <laughs> you know, hello, studying of ISKCON history. And the other thing is when, you're, when your fallen guru is an authorized ISKCON Diksha guru, it makes the whole GBC look bad. It makes all of ISKCON look bad. It makes the GBC very reticent to correct that person or expose that person. So you'll have cover-ups going on for 10, 15 years, which is much worse than whatever fall-down person did. But if some Shiksha guru has a problem, nobody worries about correcting them. They just correct him. It doesn't reflect, not a big reflection on the institution, and it's not a, you know. What, what people are thinking is, we will still have Diksha Guru as a post of institutional authority, but we won't regulate them. Now, that's nuts. Yeah. So what you do is you just remove any mantle of institutional authority. Completely. You just don't have any official ISKCON Diksha Gurus. It ceases to exist as a thing. It just doesn't exist as a thing anymore. It's finished. Take Diksha from whoever you want to take Diksha from. Right. Now, then you say, well, wouldn't that create chaos? No. Membership in ISKCON is much, 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 much more about whether we take Shula Prabhupada as our preeminent Shiksha Guru than who we have Diksha from. Case in point, you can have Diksha from Srila Prabhupada and not be a member from ISKCON. No, there's no more bona fide Diksha guru in ISKCON than Srila Prabhupada, right? Can't get a more bona fide ISKCON Diksha guru than Srila Prabhupada. 
We have a lot of people who took Diksha from Srila Prabhupada and who are not members of ISKCON because they have their primary shiksha from somebody else. So they're not members of ISKCON. Yes? Yeah. And we have people, you know, a much smaller percentage, but we have people who've taken Diksha outside of ISKCON and they accept Prabhupada as their shiksha guru and they're members of ISKCON. Some right. key people in Vrindavan and Mayapur in that category. Yeah. Definitely there's not as many. And then what happens in ISKCON when you take Diksha from someone and then they have trouble? It ends up reflecting on you. You're being judged by what your Diksha guru has done and has not done. That's ridiculous. You know, that's completely ridiculous. If your Diksha guru has had trouble, you take shelter of a Shiksha guru and you go on with life, according to our tradition. Unless your Diksha guru wasn't a Vaishnava then how do we keep purity and fidelity? We do it with the disciples. You know, you can take Diksha from an ISKCON guru and not be following your vows, for goodness sakes, just because your guru is bona fide. Or you could be adopting some bogus philosophy. The bona fide-ness of your guru, is that's, that's not the whole thing. Yeah. You know, you want to let someone on the altar, ask them. You're chanting 16 rounds, you're following the four regular principles. You want to let them in the kitchen. Who cares who their diksha guru is? So they took diksha in the Madhvasampradaya or whatever. It doesn't matter. Are you accepting Srila Prabhupada as your shiksha guru? I mean, what only matters is do you have diksha from a Vaishnava? So if we're going to have things that require diksha, and you know, you got diksha from a Buddhist, Buddhist, well, that's a problem. Yeah. But if I can show that I've gotten diksha from a bona fide Vaishnava, and then I accept Prabhupada as my shiksha guru. Then it's up to the local temple authorities. Do I sit on the Vyasa sun? Do I go on the altar? It's up to them anyway. <laughs> They're already deciding. It's not like you go to a temple and say, well, my Diksha guru is, you know, Radhana Swami or Jaipataka Swami or Bhakti Churu Swami. And they're definitely just going to put you on the Vyasa sun. <laughs> that, that, that's all you have to say. Or you're just going to go on the altar. They're going to look at you. So that's already being done. So we can already regulate that. Then, oh my God, we're not going to be able to regulate all these requirements for taking diksha, which is the main reason we're trying to control people nowadays. Oh my God, we won't be able to control people's lives. We won't be able to pretend we're controlling people's lives. Oh my God. <laughs> like the uh, Iskand Disciple course, you got to have that or else you can't get initiated. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the Disciples course is extremely valuable. No, I do. Yeah. Highly recommended. That we really say to people, you know, that if you want to be a member of ISKCON, that we highly suggest before you take Diksha that you take the ISKCON Disciples course. You know, we, we can do that. And then say, then you have to decide who you want to take Diksha from. Right. And put it back on the disciple where it belongs. And it would be such a relief for the members of the GBC, my God, to stop trying to manage something that actually they can't manage. Now I can't really tell whether or not so-and-so over there in this part of the world is. I mean, I, I know a, a situation where somebody was approved who was never visible in his local Iskand temple, practically. Right, right. And, I mean, he had a good reputation. Everybody likes him. I'm sure he's a great guy. But how do, how do you really know what people are doing? And so why 
Put that on the disciple. Let the disciple judge because scripturally that's where it should be. That's what Jill Prabhupada explains. It would be such a relief. And again, let's say ISKCON has taken over North Carolina. Let's say ISKCON has taken over the United States. What are you going to be doing? Certifying all your Diksha Gurus? <laughs> Good luck. Like, seriously? Robert yeah. talks about having hundreds of thousands of Gurus. You know, so that that's that's not reality. Then yeah. if you want to do that, then you're going to have to have, you know, seminaries with ordained clergy. And then you go right into this statement from Bhaktisiddhanta, we don't want ordained clergy. Hmm. In fact, sociologists look at that one of the main ways a religion succeeds is by having lay clergy. And this is the way our Vaishnav culture has gone on for, oh, my God, millions of years. Like, oh, my God, from the beginning of the universe, it's gone on like that. So maybe it works. I don't know. I mean, something that's gone on for millions of years. You know, it's possible that it works. I don't know. Something we've invented, you know, five years ago. I don't know if that's going to work. Right. Let's look at another question. I support the idea of devotees starting innovative ways of outreach on an independent level under ISKCON gurus, etc. But what if devotees make their own programs but are not following properly or spreading a deviant, a deviated message? Where is that balance and how do you manage that? Okay, people already do things that are not proper and do deviated messages. No matter what kind of control system you have and what kind of organization you have, people are going to do that. And some of the people who've done that in ISKCON have been Diksha gurus themselves. Yeah. We had a Diksha guru faking ecstasies with LSD for business. <laughs> Sorry for those of you who didn't know ISKCON history. So, you know, we, we had this already. It's not as if there's anything that anybody's going to be able to do to stop this. So what do you do? The, the function of one of the main functions of the GBCs and the Temple President is to preach Prabhupada's message without deviation from official ISKCON centers, to widely print and distribute Srila Prabhupada's books and lectures and conversations and so forth, to widely make this information available to have courses from ISKCON in Bhakti Shastri, in Bhakti Vaibhava, in Bhakti Vedanta, in Bhakti Sarvabhama, to have different courses on different aspects of Krishna conscious philosophy, to educate people, right? What is it to train? What's the first purpose? To train in the systematic, right? The techniques. Yeah. That's our mission. Can we prevent people from taking that and twisting it? No. If, if it comes to our attention, then we can say, you know, that's not an official ISKCON project. Okay. Right. <laughs> I mean, and we, we train society. We are meant to be primarily a Brahminical society, what I can understand. The Srila Prabhupada expected ISKCON to train people in the other Varnas and to set up Varnas within society in general, but that ISKCON itself was to be primarily Brahminical which means that ISKCON itself as a legal entity would be focused on worship and education, which are the main hallmarks of Brahminical life. And we would have ISKCON members who are in government and we would have ISKCON members who are in business and agriculture. We have ISKCON members who are in the arts and the crafts and, and everything. Yeah. But ISKCON itself is on training and education. And we keep 
putting out the real thing and we keep the purity within our own organization and counter counter the bad with the good you know keep you just keep pouring in pure mango juice and then the chemical mango juice has no room to stand but people that there's there's deviance right now i mean all kinds of things there's all you can do is say you know it's not an official Wisconsin project and look here we're an official Wisconsin project here's Shula Prabhupada's books here's Shula Prabhupada's teaching we have all these courses that you can take we have all this training that you can take make up your own mind yeah you're gonna do that anyway yeah <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> people are gonna do that anyway and here's Prabhupada's teachings and now you can look at this and see do you want to be part of that other thing or not it's not it's not something official we can't vouch for what what they're doing there one way or the other you look and you decide already that's going on but why don't you know if we see if we admit that and we work I could see us kind of could do a lot more in terms of education and training we are going in that direction that's a great process yeah. I mean, th that's a totally, and I, I would bring you on again to talk about that because that's a really interesting topic and, and uh, for a whole, you know, we can do a whole podcast on that. Let's look at another question based on the four symbolic ways in which leaders create organizational culture. What would you say ISKCON as an organization is paying attention, attention to today? Uh, examples, outreach, preaching, internal stability, maintaining st strict integrity, et cetera. What do you think we need to be paying attention to today? If you want the answer to your question, I would suggest you look at the official posters from the 50th anniversary of ISCON. And you also look at the posters and the uh, things that were done in the centennial in 96. So to look at the centennial 96 and look at the 50th anniversary. And then you'll see what ISKCON pays attention to. What do they highlight? Uh, one thing that ISKCON does not highlight that's uh, very noticeable, at least to me, uh, by its absence in both of those uh, places are the is the education of children. Right. So in the 50th uh, anniversary, the only place where there was a discussion of the education of children was in the poster about charity, about uh, doing charity work. It was nothing about the education. It just like Prabhupada opened temples and restaurants and farms. It never said schools and schools was just listed under charity programs like Food for Life. Uh, it, when uh, back in the 90s, when the strategic planning of North America started, there was a list of 17 ways and we just kind of contributed to society and there was no mention of the education of children. So I think that's something that should be pay, uh, paid attention to. Another thing that I think we're not paying attention to that we should, which is very related to the education of children, is making temple ashrams into educational institutions. Temple ashrams are brahmachari ashrams, brahmachari right. ashrams, the brahmachari ashram traditionally, if we really want to do varnash, <laughs> and not just put a cow in the backyard, and what we would do was make the Brahmachari Ashram a school because the Brahmachari Ashram is a school. And so people come to, I see this almost absent, that people are not paying attention to the Brahmachari Ashram. And in the Brahmachari Ashram, Brahmachari Ashram, to train people, as Prabhupada says in the second canto, in values of life and in specific training for a livelihood. 
So to start training people who live in temple ashrams and train people who come to our temples, have programs to train people how to use your occupation in Krishna service. That's Varna Dharma. Again, you know, there's a lot of people who talk about Varnashram and what they mean by that is, you know, have women learn how to make chapatis. But really what we want to do if we want to spread Varnashram is we want to train people. How am I going to be a university professor for Krishna? How am I going to be a doctor for Krishna? How am I going to be a congressperson for Krishna? How am I going to be a police officer for Krishna? How am I going to run a clothing business for Krishna? You know, how, how am I going to create artwork for Krishna? So to train people in this, again, vision, vision, vision. What's our big society vision? Well, if, if that's going to happen in 10 years, then I should be training people now. They should be able to come to the temple now. We do some of this. Like we have some training, the, you know, the North American Grahasta Vision team really did a lot. But, you know, to train people how to have good marriages, how to be good parents, how to retire, how to prepare for death, how to have different occupations in Krishna service. We're, we're supposed to train people and yes. how to live your life as a Krishna conscious person. And I see very, very little attention being given to this. You know, there's attention and there should be to things like book scores and deity worship and uh, that that's all very good. And these other things as well, to really look at at, at a vision, how we're going to build a society. I hardly ever even hear anybody talking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I gave a lecture once in one temple. The verse was about Gurukula, verse in purport. And so I was talking about the positive size of children's education. And the head Pujari, who'd been there forever, came up to me afterwards and said, this is the first positive class about children I have ever heard in this temple. Wow. So, you know, just even to be talking about these things is is a big step. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to take any more questions uh, because we're coming to the end here of our of our segment. Uh, but um, perhaps now I would like if you could give a conclusion, just a, some lasting uh, thoughts. Well. Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said that in every town and village, his name would be heard. There's a prediction that there's going to be a golden age. It's going to happen. Right. No matter how much Ormila messes up. <laughs> no more else. Uh, you know, no matter how much I mess up or you mess up or anybody messes up. Yeah. Srila Prabhupada is very clear. It's going to happen. Do we get the credit or not? That's our choice. That's our choice. And it's going to have one way or the other. It's like water going to the sea. Like Quinty said, you know, the Ganges flowing to the sea. If there's a rock, the water's going to go around the rock or under the rock or over the rock or whatever. If there's a cliff, it's going to be a waterfall. But it's going to get there. So how can we cooperate with that? And, and I would suggest that we can start with this visioning. Maybe just in your family, in a small group that you get together. Start, what does a society under Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's banner look like? What does it look like? Oh, I love your cup. 
Oh, thank you. Look at that. Oh, my Someone, goodness. Someone gave it to me as a gift. <laughs> a branded cup. Yeah. What does it look like? And then I can at least, at the very least, I can say, what do I as an individual want to do? That even in a very small way, and we can't really tell what's going to be small, and what's going to be big. That's up to Krishna. That's up to Krishna. You know, when you have two parallel lines, if one moves a millimeter, it may not look like a big move, but then that line is going to end all the way over there. I might think that the, that the little grains of sand that I add to Ram's bridge are inconsequential, but I don't know. I don't know whether it's the big thing or the little thing that's actually of consequence to playing a role in this vision. And then what can I do? I, I got this vision, get as clear as I can, get together with some other people, some input. What can I do? What, what can I do that will be leading in that direction and helping in that direction according to my personality and my talents and my realization? I don't have to be banging on the door of some so-called leaders. Prabhupada said, don't say they. That is privacy. You are all they. Yes. So it's not that I'm just going to put this at the door of our poor, overworked, elderly GBC people. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. not very considerate. Oh, yeah. you got to do everything. Yeah. But I'm Iskand. You're Iskand. Yeah. What can I do? And you don't know. The blog you write, the song you sing, the program you have, the person you talk to, the cookies you bake, what you do at work, how do you know? What's going to be the real pivotal thing? Something you can do to go towards that vision. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so um, if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, it's, what's the best way to to get in touch with you? Oh my goodness! Are you going to give me a flood of of mail? No, no, I'm not. But I, I'll just put up your website there. I'm sure no, there's, there's another one. Um, I'm not sure if this one has the contact form. There's one ermiladasi.org. Okay, let me. Put and that, that has um, the ermiladasi.com is my personal website. Ermiladasi.org is my official. website. Yeah, there you go. Okay. And there's a contact form there. I do get, I get lots of spam through that contact form, but um, there is a contact form there and that does go to my email. I will answer it. Uh, sometimes I'm a little slow, but great. I do answer that. And if you're on Facebook, I'm, I'm on messenger. Right. Um, most of the stuff I get on messenger is, is just random videos and pictures of things. <laughs> so I think all of us. <laughs> I have one god sister who sends me, you know, one one to five conspiracy theories things a day. Nice. You know, kinds of things on Messenger, but well, well, Mother Amelia, thank you so much for for doing this. I mean, it was very fascinating what you're saying, and it's definitely something that we need to work on in our society. And I think the way we the way we were speaking is is constructive as well as 
constructively criticize as well in this in a way that we as members of our own society can do that and i think that uh it was very informative and i and i and i'm going to listen it over again just to get the different points that you were talking about um and Alyssa, also, i want to thank you oh thank you thank yeah you, first of all for doing this and then i want to just thank you for being you uh, the, you. Debt, the debt that I owe you and your family, your your parents' family, uh, is is huge. Yes, I the mean, time I stayed with you for three weeks when my mother was leaving this world. Uh, right. I, I thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. We we look back on that time very fondly, and I remember. I don't know if you remember, but. I was going to get a job at a supermarket. I remember very remember well. that? <laughs> I was going to, I think I went to my first day and I came back and you're like, so what do you do? I was a te I was like a teen or something. Yeah, and I said, I went to a supermarket and you told me, you know, there's a lot of karma involved. And, and you gave me the verse about the, you know, the, and I was, uh, and I quit the job right there. And, and uh, I thank you for that. Uh, I really you're appreciate welcome. it. <laughs> but anyway, you guys, you know, you treated me as one of your family. So yeah, yeah, that was a wonderful time. We really appreciated that as well. You having your association. Um, so please stay on, um, Mother Romula. You can. Um, we'll like to talk to you afterward. But I'm going to stop the live video. And thank you, all my listeners, for for listening. That's episode 48. Next week, we're going to have I think Mahatma Prabhu coming on. Uh, and so um, looking looking forward to that. So thank you again for listening. And uh, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna Hare